Good morning to you. It's good to see you in the house of the Lord, and um, I want to recount to you just a short story. I met a brother in Christ um, from who, from all appearances, he had a life that many of us would only dream about. What kind of life did he have? He had everything that anyone would ever want or need in life. For example, he had a very secure and well-paying job. He had a beautiful, loving family. And he was active in the, for the Lord in his community and his church. And so if we were looking from the outside, it would be very clear to us that people really admired him, respected him, and in some respects even envied him. He had everything that you and I would ever uh, want to have and thought that would bring happiness. He shared with me that although everything looked good on the outside, he was hurting on the inside. And as you listen to his story, you began to feel that somehow, some way, happiness had eluded him. And one way to put this is that he was materially full, but spiritually, he was empty. And this was the case for this young man. A significant number of us, I think, can identify with that. And many of us can identify with him. Like him, we try to remedy the situation in the same way. For example... I asked him, well, what are you doing about this? What are you doing to try to find happiness? And he says, oh, I fill my calendars with all kinds of good things to do. And then he says, I fill my, I make up lists of all kinds of things I need to achieve and all things I need to accumulate. And so he had showed me these lists and it was incredible. I mean, people would never be able to do these things in a whole lifetime, but he had pretty much fulfilled all of them. But he found out that Life was more than just filling our calendars with more things to do and only found that he was enjoying it less. The root of happiness is not found in doing, but rather in being. And this is why Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is so important to us. Because like all of us here, we get into this rut, we get into this habit, we get into this approach of life that is doing, 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 doing. Jesus says, calm down. He says, it's who you are on the inside that really brings happiness. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount is such a precious piece of the Word of God. Because it really displays for us the contrast between what God wants and what the world wants. So I want us to join the crowd gathered around our Savior and listen and learn about how we can find happiness in the Lord. It might be the very kind of changing message that you and I so desperately want and so desperately need in our lives. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 today, and we'll get into this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, looking out here, there's many people that have just joined us for the first time, so if you don't mind, let's catch up a little bit. Christ was teaching his disciples, in other words, those who proclaimed to be followers of Christ, and so he began to preach the Sermon on the Mount. Christ defined and described the kind of character and conduct he expected of his followers to have while they lived on the earth. And so don't get the order mixed up. Jesus started with character and then he went to conduct because character was more important. His emphasis was on the internal rather than on the external. In other words, God is concerned more about who we are and less about what we do. Now, it's not to say that what we do is not unimportant to God. But all God is trying to say to us 
is that if we are the right person on the inside, we're going to do the right things on the outside. And God wants us to be right on the inside so that we will do what is right on the outside. He wants us to be right on the inside so we can do what is right on the outside. Now, this seems to be that, you know, why this is important is because many of us have gotten very proficient, very efficient, if you will, very good at living on the outside. But our hearts are not right. And so what happens is that we can fool most anybody on any given day. And so we go around life and on the outside, everybody sees, wow, ooh, wow, you know, <laughs> and all those kinds of, but on the inside, our hearts are just full of turmoil. Our hearts are filled with all kinds of anxious moments. Our hearts are filled with all kinds of um, uh, uh, motives that perhaps are not really true. And so God puts everything in the right perspective. He says, look, who you are is more important to me than who, what you do. And so that's why the Sermon on the Mount becomes so important. So he starts by the sermon by teaching on a topic that is common to all human beings. And this is the subject of happiness. Happiness is that kind of contentment and satisfaction with life, no matter what the outward circumstances may be. Now, where do we get this? If you look at these first few verses um, of the Sermon on the Mount, Christ uses the word blessed eight times in the beginning. And the word blessed is literally means happy. So, you, one other way to read these verses are, happy are the poor in spirit, in verse 3. Happy are those who acknowledge their deep helplessness and dependence upon God. This is where it starts. Why did God start there? Because until we are broken, we can't be blessed. You see? <laughs> it's as simple as that. And so, if we don't see our helplessness and dependence upon God, there's no use going any further. Why have God even in the equation of our lives? We just go about doing whatever we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it. But this is what God, uh, Christ teaches us about happiness. So it started with blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And then it goes on from there to verse 4. So here we go. Verse 4. It says, blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You say to yourself, that is weird. <laughs> that is really strange. How can we ever come to this point of saying, those who are happy are those who are sad? <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, come together for us. Now, I warned you last week that when you get in the Sermon on the Mount, you are going to hear all kinds of things that don't fit the normal frame of thinking that we, we live by. Okay, you will hear wondrous things and you will hear things that say that doesn't register. That doesn't make sense to me. You will hear that. And this is one of those. Here he says, you uh, happy are those who are sad. But now we have to understand that those who are uh, who is can be blessed is the one who mourns. And that word mourn is very, very uh, particular. For example, what does it mean to mourn? What kind of sorrow is this? Well, here we go. The first thing, it is not the kind of sorrow that comes as a result of the normal trials and troubles common to life. For example, some of us might say, hmm, okay, 
disappointment, discouragement, all of these kinds of things. Those will cause all kinds of um, mourning in my life. I have a pretty sad life, you know. And and you say this, that, or that. You say you might involve something like perhaps disease or some kind of illness in your life. You might describe some kind of, of death, of passing of a loved one. And you said, my life is pretty sad. So is God saying here, the more tragedy you go through in your life, the more happy you're going to be? Should we be praying and say, bring it on, God. I want to be happy. So let the terrible things happen in my life. You know, bring it on. More the merrier. Is that what he's saying? No, he's not saying that. We don't win special prizes just because of the tragedies and troubles and, and trials that go on in our life. But what does it mean, mean then to be sorrowful? Well, this kind of sorrow, it is a sorrow that over personal sin in our lives. Oh, pastor, now you're getting really serious here. You mean he's saying be mournful, be sorrowful over sin in our lives? Yes, I am. You say to yourself, how did you get that? I, I just saw these few words. I saw the same words you saw in your Bible. And all it says is to mourn. Well, it fits well with verse 3. When he says, be poor in spirit. As you and I are stripped of our pride, and we start to see our helplessness and dependence upon God, we begin to see our unworthiness and sinfulness. Okay? So it fits well. Jesus is going from verse 3, he's going to verse 4. And so it fits well with that. It fits well with the sorrow described by Old Testament prophets. For example, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. What is the word contrite? Do How often do we use the word contrite? <laughs> Not very often, but the word contrite means showing sincere remorse filled with a sense of guilt and the desire for atonement. It is a repentant heart. It is a broken heart, you see? And so this was the kind of sorrow that the Old Testament prophets often spoke of. And so we link it back to this particular uh, case, and we see here, that it applies. It applies also to uh, the kind of sorrow that uh, King David had after his affair with Bathsheba in Psalms 51. If you read those verses there, you see that David was completely a broken man. Here was a mighty warrior of God. Here was a man who had accomplished so much in his reign as the king of Israel. And yet he was broken before God. He was truly sorrowful over his sins. It also fits well with the sorrow described by the New Testament apostles. For example, the Apostle Paul. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God, oh, I'm sorry, verse 9. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. Paul is saying, I'm sorry you're feeling bad. I'm sorry you're feeling sad about your sin. But this is really serious sorrow. This is sorrow that leads to repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, 
leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. And so we see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament that when there is sorrow over sin, that this uh, fits well into what Jesus was linking it to. It is also a sorrow that is encompassing. It is a sorrow over the sin and the lives of others. Not just our own sin, but in the lives of others who are around us. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 21 says this, I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and have not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality which they have practiced. Paul looks at this group of believers at Corinth and he says, you know, it's going to be a real humble experience for me to come and see you all. What am I going to see? I'm going to be mournful. I am going to be sorrowful over the people who should have repented of their sin but didn't. It was really going to be a hard, hard experience for him. It's also, if you look at Nehemiah in the Old Testament, Nehemiah demonstrates this sorrow over the sins of people uh, around him. In uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses uh, 6-7, read this. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your, spirit, your servant Moses. Nehemiah was deeply, deeply, deeply sorrowful and uh, repentant about the sins of his people and himself. Notice here he included himself in this whole description. So this idea of people being mournful over sin in their own lives and the others is very strong in the scripture. And so as a result, people who mourn over sin treat sin seriously. They recognize and acknowledge the presence of sin in their lives and in the lives of others. They are brokenhearted over it and want others to be brokenhearted and repent too. Now, we have to understand that this is almost foreign to us today. This is almost foreign to us today. And for example, uh, you look at the top TV shows that are on. Often these shows uh, have a sin theme to them. There's some people living together. There's people who are lying to each other. There are people doing this and doing that. And so we've gotten such a steady diet of this that it no longer really raises much of an alarm to any of us, does it? And so we just go on. We don't teach. We don't treat sin uh, seriously. We maybe even treat it humorously. Sin no longer brings shock and awe. When people are horribly murdered or assaulted, we barely flinch. When our political leaders are, uh, act unethically, we blink. And when we hear that our priests and pastors betray a trust, we merely turn the page to the next story in the newspaper. You see? And so when it comes to injustice, bribery, extortion, and things like that, it's B-A-U. It's business as usual. You see? That's how we handle things. That's how we have grown accustomed to sin. In today's wide-open society that accepts no absolute truth or values, 
We accept any and all forms of conduct and no longer see them as sinful or against God. You know, we've become very, very, very adept at this. For example, uh, in the First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it tells us that in the latter times, in the latter times, people will have their conscience seared like with a branding iron. You know what seared is? Seared is like burning. And when it burns something, the tissue is dead. It does not feel. It does not react to anything. And he says, in the latter times, in the latter times, people's consciences will be seared, just like with a branding iron. And what will happen is nothing bothers them anymore. Are we approaching that? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Even God's people. It's even more self, uh, self-evident self when we think of ourselves as the times we live in, okay? We live in times which I call the me, myself, and I generation, <laughs> okay? And so the whole universe revolves around us. If it's not revolving around us, it's not revolving. <laughs> That's how we basically see things. And so we're brought up on a steady diet of such things as be self-confident, be, self, be self-willed, be self-seeking, and be self-righteous as it would turn out, you see? And so we get into that mode. We get into that mode. And as a result, we just go about life in a very sinful manner. Instead of sorrowing over our sin, we actually go out and promote it. We actually go out and support it, you see? And so I leave you with this thought. When we cease sorrowing over sin... We are in danger of being anesthetized against the presence, promotion, and power of sin and its consequences. You get the point? The point is that we eventually just become immune to it. You know, when I I took a lot of chemistry classes, and so there was a a little exercise that uh, we did. And uh, and what we did was uh, we got a frog, a live frog, and we would put him in a beaker of hot water. And the minute you put them in the hot water, the frog would jump out, right? Makes sense. Uncomfortable. Jumps out, all right? And then what happened is that the teacher said, I want to show you something. So we got a beaker of lukewarm water. We put it under a burner. We put it over a burner. But this time, we turned the temperature up little by little, little by little. Before we knew it, we had frog legs for lunch, you see? And that's exactly what happens to us is that we are put into society. The heat is turned up little by little. Before we know it, we're cooked. We're toast. We are victims to the host uh, system. And so we have to be careful about not sorrowing over our sin. It has great repercussions for any society and any culture. It is also a sorrow that brings the forgiveness and comfort of God into our lives. If we will let it, if we will let it. You see, so far, it sounded pretty, pretty <laughs> negative, didn't it, up to this point? Okay, it's sorrowing, it's mourning over our sins and also the sins of other people around us. But now we come to this point here. It is a sorrow that brings the forgiveness and comfort of God into our lives. <clears throat> when we uh, are, when we come to this point of sorrow over our sin. God does exercise forgiveness and pardon. For example, look at Psalms 51, verse 17. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and a contrite heart. That repentant heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. God goes on record and he says, if you or I are truly sorrowful over our sins, we are truly broken and repentant over our sins. You will find me available to you. You will find me open to you. You see, sometimes people just can't come to God because they have this terrible, terrible view that God's just going to be this vengeful God. He's going to slap us upside our head and he's going to do all these horrible things. to us, And he could not care less about us. But that's not true. He says here in his word, he goes on record, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. And then Isaiah chapter 55, verses 67. In the New Living Translation, it says it so wonderfully this way. Seek the Lord while you can find him. Call on him now while he is near. Let the people turn from their wicked deeds. Let them banish from their minds the very thought of doing wrong. Let them turn to the Lord that he may have mercy on them. Yes, turn to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Wow. You know, I I, I just never had that view of God at all. That he would be so gracious and he would be so kind. But yes, he is. But the condition is that we are sorrowful, that we are mourning over our sins. You know, sometimes we as Christians, we're probably the worst offenders. We come to God with a sense of entitlement. It's sort of like, well, God, you know, I have my problems like anybody else. And, and so, you know, but, but you sent Christ to die for me. And, and, and you have to forgive me. You must forgive me. And so on and so forth. Rather than coming and saying, God, thank you for your grace and your mercies over us. And so this becomes a, a, a avenue for us to experience the forgiveness and comfort of God when we are mournful sorrowful over our sins. And so, also, God does uh, exercises compassion on us as well. God exercises forgiveness and pardon, but he does also exercise compassion when we are truly sorrowful. Proverbs 28, verse 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. You see, so many times people believe that, you know, the, the way to handle sin is to keep concealing it. I had a young man one time that got into uh, an affair uh, uh, with uh, another person. And so they, they somehow their conscience was just bothered so much. And they, they came to me and they said, Pastor, I have to share something with you and asked him. And I said, OK, sure, go ahead. And they shared this uh this horrible relationship that he was in. And so he was saying, you know, I'm, 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 I'm so bad. I, I, am, I, have, I have done so many things wrong. I don't think God would even forgive me of these things. And so he said, I'm going to just keep on going the way I am. I'll just do my best to try and conceal things and, and, and leave it at that. And I said, please, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. And he says, well, what do you want me to do? And so up came Proverbs chapter 28. And it says there, again, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Okay? So here's another addition to the whole thing. 
You're not only sorrowful about your sin, you're not only repentant about your sins, but you're actually turning away from those sins. You see? And God says, when you get serious about sin, I'm going to get serious about effecting restoration and reconciliation with you. But see, so many of us don't get to that point. We don't get to that point. Because we're so busy trying to conceal our sins. We're all so busy trying to be what we're not. And it just eats at us. It just consumes us. And we feel even more guilty. But this is what this is the kind of sorrow that is good for us. The sorrowing over our sins helps us to experience the mercies of God. You and I no longer have to seek temporary relief and refuge in worldly possessions, pleasures, or philosophies from our tortured consciences. You see, how many of you, don't raise your hands, but how many of you would say, I'll go for that. (laughs) I'll go for that. I would really love to have one good night's sleep. I would really like to be able to go through one week without feeling like I'm that small. I really would like to get through life and really feel that me and God are walking on the same track. Something like that. We can be remorseful and repent of our sins and find God's forgiveness and compassion. Christ taught us that true happiness comes when we are truly sorrowful over our personal sins and over the sins of others around us. Now, I told you at the beginning, you're not going to hear the usual formulas for success in life, and that leads to happiness. You won't find that. How many people come up to you and say, hey, the key to happiness is knowing that you're really helpless without God. How many times have you heard people come up to you and say to you, you know, the way to happiness is really is to be sad about your sins in your life, to be sorrowful. You won't hear that. The world doesn't want to teach that. The world doesn't believe it. But God, Jesus Christ taught this and he wants us to know this. Well, how are we going to make this? How are we going to see this work in our lives? How, how can it really help? Okay, let me suggest some things to you. First of all, see sin in, your, in our lives and other people's lives as serious, as something really serious. Okay? Don't, come on. Don't just get up there in the morning. Just don't get up there in your interactions with people and look at your own life and just say, you know, huh, it's another day, another dollar, another sin. So what? You know? But let's really get serious about sin and say, I've heard many different uh, 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 reasons that people give. People would say, well, look, look, Pastor, don't go over the deep end here. Don't get all, you know, uh, hyper on me. Uh, We are saved and we can have our cake and eat it, too. But I would point out two things to you. First of all, God does not let us off the hook about sin just because we can't be perfect. Oh, I didn't know that. You know, I, I, I thought God already knew that we could not be perfect. So, hey, he's just folding his arm up there waiting for us to die and go into his presence. You know, then we're going to be holy. All right. No. If you look at First Peter, chapter one, verses 14 through 16, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the holy one who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So God doesn't let us off the hook. We just can't say, because we're not going to be perfect, that we can just go off and do what we want to do. 
But God says, no, I'm holding you responsible. You are my children. You ought to have my DNA going through you. And you ought to reflect the nature of who I am. I am your father. And so we ought to be holy. We ought to be sinless. Another one is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. When it talks about this, people say, well, I'm saved. I can just go off and do what I want to do. In Romans chapter 6, verse uh, uh, 1 and 2, it says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So, you see, you and I are not off the hook, okay? We have to see sin as something serious, okay? That's how we're going to do it. Now, how are we going to stay on track? How are we going to stay on track? Well, let me suggest a few things for you. First of all, scrape away all forms of denial, excuses, rationalizations, and blame. Ah, I wish I had a dollar for all the rationales and all the denials that I've heard from people over the years. Okay, I'd be a rich guy by now, okay? Here's some of the ones, here's some of my favorites. I am not any worse than the person next to me. Okay, so that one goes like this. Okay, (laughs) that one just says, you know, (laughs) I'm not any worse than this guy, so don't pick on me, okay? The next one is, no one's perfect. No one's perfect. So why should I be? Why should I be? Okay? I'm, I'm just living the norm. Okay? I'm at the norm. All right? I'm like anybody else. Another one is, everyone does it. I'm just leveling the playing field. <laughs> if I don't be <laughs> sinful, then I'm going to be at a disadvantage. I'm going to be at a terrible disadvantage. I'm just leveling out the field. Another one. It's their fault. I don't make the rules. I just play by them. Okay? Have you heard that one before? So what happens is people have all of these rationalizations. They have all of these um, uh, excuses as to why they ought not to be um, uh, holy, but they, should, they can continue on in their sin. But if you look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 to 10, this is the encouragement from God. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have no sin, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so God is saying, look, admit it. Come on. Come on. Admit it that you have sin in your life and the sin problem is serious. Deal with it. Scrape away all of those rationalizations, and blame. Now, this is how sometimes it works, okay? I had a seminary professor one time, and he was teaching us uh, something about the, uh, one of the books of the Bible. And, and he looked at us, and we, we were all guys in the room. He says, gentlemen. And we all looked up. And he says, you are dangerous. Dangerous? Am I dangerous? Do I look dangerous to you? You know, he says, you are dangerous. And then in kind of a long pause, emphatic pause, he turns to the guys and says, because of your training, because of your Bible knowledge, you can rationalize and almost anything that goes on. 
Now, he was saying this to pastors and missionaries and, and to be and all of this kind of Christian workers of all you know, levels. He's saying you are dangerous because you can rationalize almost anything and you can even use the Bible to do it. That was an indictment. That was a wake-up call. And it's the same way even among God's people, Christians, is that we can come across as being totally justified, totally rational, and we can use the Bible to prove our point. He says, you've got to beware of being dangerous. That's what happens here, is that we need to scrape away all of those denials and all of those excuses, see sin as serious, and deal with it. Number two, surrender. Surrender your heart to be examined by God. Psalms 139, 23 to 24 says this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there are any grievous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. This is Psalms 139, 23 to 24 from the, uh, um, uh, the English Standard Version. Okay? And so what happens is that we allow ourselves and our hearts to be examined by God. Now, notice here, I didn't say be examined by another person. But God says, by him. Okay? Let me ask you a question. How many of you this morning woke up, and you prayed to God, and you said, God, it's your day. It's Sunday. Examine my heart, and see if there's any sinful way in me. How many of you did? Don't raise your hands. How many of you did? How many of you did this this week? How many of you did this this month? How many of you did this this year? I think you get my point. You see? How many of us are willing to open our heart to God's examination? I didn't say to pastor's examination. I didn't say to the elder's uh, examination. I didn't say this to your brother or sister examination. I said to God. You see? We're very reluctant to do this. Okay? Because we're scared to death of what he will find. And we'll have to face it and deal with it. But surrender our hearts to God to acknowledge. Let me say this. That when this happens, God's grace doesn't promote the denying or hiding of sin. It promotes the dealing and disclosing of sin for healing. For healing. You see, the way back, the way to get truly healed is to reveal. Okay? That's what happens. And you see to yourself, wow, I didn't know that. But if you let God come in to examine your heart, you let him surface up those issues, you will be surprised what he can do. Number three, study God's word and learn more uh, from him. Psalms 119, 9 and 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you, it says. Study God's word. You know, I, I, I do really appreciate the kind spirit of Grace Baptist Church, okay? Uh, 
and, and I've experienced it firsthand. Uh, in what way? For example, I stand there at the back of the door as you go out after I preach a message, and then the other pastors also stand out the door after they've preached. And you people come by, and, and you say some very, very precious things. You say things like, thank you for the reminder this morning, Pastor. Or thank you for the sermon, Pastor, you know, uh, you know and all these kind of things. And those are all good. But, you know, in my, in my mind, the thing that would really make my day is if people would say, God spoke to me today. God's word spoke to me today. And that would just really set my week on the right path. You see, because it's God's word that needs to speak to you. Some people have questioned and said, you know, Pastor, why do you use so many verses and stuff like that? Is it because you don't have enough to say yourself, so you fill it up with a lot of verses? No. No. Fundamentally, philosophically, I believe in God's word that is able to do what I can't do as a human being. God's word has a way of speaking to your heart, 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 in spite of me, not because of me. I have complete confidence in God's word to speak to the needs of your heart. And sometimes I find myself giving you more verses than you really need because I not because I don't have anything to say. It's because I want you to hear what God is saying. You see? So then when you leave here, you say, wow, God spoke to me today. God spoke to me today. In spite of pastor, God spoke to me today. And that's what happens when we study God's word. And then spend time with God's people. This is really important. One of the first things that happens with people who are caught in sin they avoid God's people. They don't want to be caught dead with them, okay? They don't want to be caught alive with them either. And so they, they avoid them like the plague, you know? And so sometimes, you know, the how do I know that people are struggling, some people may be hurting, is that I look and see if, if you're here. If you're not here, if I haven't seen you in a while, then I do my best to try and track you down and say, hey, is everything okay? It may be sin, it may be something else, who knows? But the point is, Spend time with God's people. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Now, I know some of you would say to yourself, ah, 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 ah. you know, that may be true in other churches, but eh, I don't know about grace. You know, I don't feel like I'm being built up and I felt like I'm being built down. <laughs> you know, everybody's complaining and everybody's grousing about this, that, and the other. Yeah, yeah, we have our moments, don't we? But what God is trying to say to us, that isn't the way he wanted it to be. God says, I want to be among God's people where you will have encouragement, that you would be encouraged. That doesn't mean that you, you ignore sin in people's lives. No, that's not what it is. It's exhort one another too, you know, and, and, and things like that. So it's not that you're just going to come to God's people and hear all good things. Sometimes you need to have some words of correction. That's, that's in there too, you see. So spend time with God's people. Number, the last one, seek per- perfection and accept nothing less than progress. Oh, you say to yourself, oh, man, that's a mouthful. What does pastor mean by that? Okay. You see, one of the things is that we say to ourselves, well, nobody's going to be perfect. I'm not going to be perfect, you know. So who cares? I'm not going to, I'm not even going to try anymore. 
I'm not even going to try anymore. But listen to Philip, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. I love this. This is from the New Living Translation. I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection. But I keep working toward that day when I will finally be all that Christ Jesus saved me for and wants me to be. No, dear friends, I'm still not all that I should be. But I am focusing all my energy on this one thing. Forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. So what is he saying? Okay, he says, seek perfection, but settle for nothing less than progress. So let me ask you a question. Are you more loving today than you were yesterday? Are you more caring than you were uh, today than you were yesterday? Are you more devoted to the Lord today than you were yesterday? What will you be tomorrow? Whoa. Oh. Pastor, you're really getting serious, aren't you? I'm not. The Word of God is. You see? So, when we put all this together. Real happiness is not found in anything this world has to offer. It is found when we are right with God. Being poor in spirit, meaning we realize, we acknowledge, we embrace our, our helplessness and dependence upon him, and we mourn over our sin and the sins of others. If you really want to be happy, be sorrowful over sin. Let's pray together. Father, as we come together in this sanctuary, we know, Lord, that you have brought us together to glorify you, to worship you, to give you the praise and the honor that you so richly deserve. But also, we've come into this sanctuary to hear from you, to deal with the situations in our life, and specifically the sin in our life. We know, Lord, that the world doesn't believe in this. As the world would have it, there are no sins, just your, our choices. But we know, Lord, from your word, that there are sins, and there are, is a standard by which we will all be held accountable. And so, Lord, we come to you today to ask that you do a wondrous thing. That, Father, you would bring a sense of sorrow and remorse over our sins, big or small. And that, Father, we would come to you and avail ourselves of your grace, mercy, forgiveness, and pardon. And we pray, Lord, that you would cleanse our consciences. So at last, we can leave with a sense of purpose and wholeness. That, Father, we can walk with you in the way that you have always wanted us to walk, with integrity and with uprightness. Oh, Lord, we know we will fail again. But, Father, let that not hinder us from pursuing that which you desire. Help us to be your children in every way. In Jesus' name, amen.